We're going to be looking today in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Last week we began a message I called the curse and the promise. And uh, we did the curse part last week. And today we get to see the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. The promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember, of course, when Jesus cursed the fig tree. That was a symbolic curse. And he then went into the temple and he cursed it in a very, very real way, not a, not a symbolic way. Both of them for the same reason. There was no fruit. The leaves on the fig tree gave to him the promise that there might be fruit or there should be fruit. It, it gave the appearance of fruit. All the activity, the hustle and bustle going on in the temple certainly gave an appearance that something was going on there of a spiritual nature. But that was not the case. Uh, the next day when they came back after Jesus had cursed the fig tree. Now when Jesus did that, that was on Monday and and now it's Tuesday morning. The fig tree is dead, dried up from the roots. But remember, this was a picture of the temple. It was a picture, not only though of that, but of the whole temple worship of all of Judaism. It had become their barrenness. And that barrenness was connected to their prayerlessness. And he taught, saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you've made it a den of thieves. Now, it wasn't that there wasn't prayer going on there. There was a lot of it. Some of it was very long and some very loud. But it wasn't legitimate. It's like almost everything else there. It had become just a show. And therefore, what Solomon had prayed for and what the Lord had promised so long ago when that first temple was built was, was just no more. That was gone and a barrenness had taken its place. But just stop with me for a moment because it sets the context for everything literally that we're going to see here today when God responded to Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 at the dedication of the first Temple, So we're all the way up here. It's not uh, the second temple. In a way, it's kind of the third temple. It was the one that they had added on to and, and uh, remodeled under Herod. And it was going to take uh, years and years to finish it. In fact, it would only be finished for a couple of three years before it was torn down. But all the way back then to that very first temple, God had said this. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night. This is not an unfamiliar passage. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayers made in this place. Somehow we never get around to quoting verse 15 when we quote all the rest of that passage, or especially verse 14. Because that was just a part of the promise that God made to Solomon. In this place, God says, my ears will be open, my eyes will be open. I will be watching and listening for the prayers that are offered in this place. When I was in Jerusalem back in the 90s, it was astonishing to me to see how many people were standing by what was once called the Wailing Wall, but now it's called the Western Wall. It's not the Wailing Wall anymore. It's where some of those foundation rocks were still in place. And they're still there even today. The foundation stones of that temple. People would write out their prayers and stick them in the cracks of those stones. There were people standing there, rocking back and forth, tapping that box that was on their head. And inside that box is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. Tapping that box on their... Some of those people had worn the soles off their shoes. They were praying in that place. Because of the promise that God had made to them. Jesus uh, knew the disciples were used to going to the temple. When they were in the temple, all of the feasts, there were regular times that they would go in prayer. One of them is mentioned in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. Being the ninth hour, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to pray in the temple. It was a matter of significance and importance. It was in the disciples' mind. It was in Israel's mind. So if indeed, as Jesus is saying, and as he's already told them, this place is left unto you desolate, then what about prayer? If that place known as my house of prayer was turned into a den of thieves, if it was under the judgment of God and cursed, and it was, what about their prayers? If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll never find a single time that Jesus prayed in the temple. Not once. Not saying that he didn't. He may have, but it's not recorded for us a single time. He prayed a bunch on Gethsemane. Prayed a bunch on unnamed mountains and places almost all the times where the Bible says that Jesus was praying. He was outside and all by himself. He would teach his disciples a different kind of prayer. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. No doubt a whole lot of that was going on in the temple. Praying long, praying loud, praying where everybody could see and everybody could observe their devotions. But you, Jesus said, when you pray, verse 6, 
You go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What a change Jesus is implementing. No longer was there going to be just that place of prayer in the temple. Because the Father would hear their prayers from wherever they were. And so that now that the temple is under the curse, Jesus gives them this incredible promise. He says in verse 22, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. You see, God is... Renewing that promise, that promise that he had made so long ago to Solomon. I will hear the prayers that you pray in this place. But now it's expanded. It's not just going to be in that place anymore. That mountain, that mountain can be moved anywhere. It's it's not about that mountain anymore. It's not about that place anymore. Now any place can be the place of prayer. There'll come a time in your life when praying a prayer that God will respond to and answer and grant will be the most important thing in all the world to you. You've probably been there before. Unfortunately, sometimes we get like an old evangelist story, and this, was, this, is, this one's from way, way back. It goes back to the telegraph days. I mean, it's hard to think about the telegraph days when we're up here in the texting days, but we do identify with how this kind of played out because, you see, we have autocorrect now. Okay? And, and have, how many of you have ever had a text message jumbled by autocorrect? Anybody? Okay, I'm not the only one. Good. I was beginning to think it was just my phone that was messed up. But this old evangelist was going to a place to preach a revival in the church we were going to took the extraordinary step because it cost money to send a telegram. But it would get there pretty quickly, sometimes in a day. It depended on how quickly then the Western Union guy could deliver it out to your place. But a day, maybe two at the most. So they sent the telegram to tell him that we are praying for you. Now you understand they had to pay, pray, pay by the words. So it's very short. We are praying for you. Now, what they intended to say was, we do not expect a response. They didn't want him telegraphing back to them to say thank you or whatever. We're not expecting a response. But somehow, the telegraph operator got it messed up. So that the telegram that he got said, we are praying for you. We are not expecting an answer. He said he had a good time, and the church had a good time with that. We're praying for you. We're not expecting an answer. I wonder how many times in your life and mine that we're found guilty of that. We're praying, but we're really not expecting an answer. How then are we going to have a powerful prayer life? 
And let me just say to you right now that the world in which we are living today, the situation that we are encountering, the growing uh, animosity, the growing darkness in our culture, folks, this is no time to have a powerless prayer life. We need a powerful prayer life. So if it isn't about going to some holy place, if it isn't about some formula to be prayed again and again, if it isn't about some sacrifice to be made or some offering to be given, if it's not about a candle to be lit, then what what is it? What promises power to our prayers? Well, Jesus spells it out for us. As in this pivotal moment, you understand this is Tuesday. You know what's coming on Friday. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is teaching his disciples one more time? It's not like he hadn't done it before. How many times? He doesn't really say anything to them here that he hadn't said before. But it's just the moment that makes it so significant. He teaches them about prayer. So first of all, this morning I want you to notice the principle of faith. That's what we're going to call it, the principle of faith. Verse 22, Jesus answered, and that is right there for you, and said to them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Jesus did not say, Have faith in faith. Jesus did not say, Have faith in your declaration of faith. Whatever it is that you're believing God for. I tell you, this has become so prevalent in American culture, we don't even bat an eyelash at it anymore. Well, I'm believing God for this. Well, I'm going to declare it in Jesus' name. We hear that all the time. And a lot of it, folk, is rooted in what Jesus taught here and in other places, as if somehow we can attach faith to something. I'm believing it. And then there's that corresponding awareness that somehow God is obligated to do whatever I believed Him for. But I, I don't, I, I've heard a lot of people believe God for things that didn't come to pass. Have you? I don't mean they're not sincere. I'm just reminding you this morning that Jesus did not say believe in faith or believe in a word of faith. He said have faith in God. You believe in God. Because, listen, the power is not in some word. It's not in some declaration. The power is in our Lord Jesus Christ who said all power is given unto me. He is the source of the power. Ephesians 1.19 makes it clear for us what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Those two verses packed every single word in the Greek language for power. And they had a bunch of them. And all of them are used there. And all of them used in reference to the mighty resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has the power. Have faith in God. It's not about a a place where you pray from. And I'm not not going to tell you today if if you feel like, well, you know, I I just want to come to the church and pray. 
I'm not going to push you down or put you down for that one bit. I do the same thing myself. I like to come in here when nobody else is around but me and whatever it is that makes all the noises around this place. And I'm not talking about the kids down in the daycare. I'm talking about an empty building. You'd be amazed at how much noise there is in an empty church building. I don't know what it all is. Might be angels. I don't know. I don't know. I love to come in this place when it's all quiet and dark. Bow down right here. Do I feel the presence of God in a special way? Well, yes, yes, I do, matter of fact. But that doesn't mean I don't feel the same presence of God when I pray at home or pray in my living room or pray in any one of any other places. Because the, the power, the, the secret of, of power of prayer is, is not in a place anymore. Jesus made that very clear in this passage. We can move this mountain wherever you are. It's obviously in a place. It isn't in believing in some word of faith. It is in our, in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A faith in that prompts us to ask. James says you have not because you ask not. Yeah. You might have heard sometimes that you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You've heard that expression. Sometimes we're not, uh, that's our way of describing how that we make a big deal out of something that's really not a big deal. But we do face some big deals in life. Some real mountains, some real struggles. Those mountains are usually troubles of some kind, trials, sicknesses, difficult times, great times of opposition. We see some matter of injustice maybe that has affected us or our family, some matter of violence that has hurt us or, or, or somebody else that we care about. All of these things are mountains that we approach with a faith that prompts us to ask God, to ask, ask. And we ask God to remove them or heal them or provide for them. But while we're asking, we also remember what Simon Peter taught us in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19 when he said, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Isn't that an interesting passage? You can suffer according to the will of God. You might be suffering, and it, it's not that you've done something bad. It's not that you've messed up. It's not that God is angry at you or upset with you. It's not that God is punishing you or judging you. You can, I can, suffer according to the will of God. You know what Simon Peter tells us to do when that happens? Then you keep doing good. You trust God with your soul because He is a faithful creator. Sometimes... We are suffering. We tend to think that God doesn't know, but He does. God knows our suffering. God knows our sickness. God knows our pain. God knows when our finances are tight. God knows when our marriage is struggling. God knows when our kids are rebellious. Our Father knows what we have need of before we even ask. But still He says, ask. When we do, not every suffering is going to be taken away because sometimes we suffer in the will of God. 
Not every sickness is going to be healed. If that were the truth, then only lost people would die. And, and believers would never die because we'd be healed of every illness and we'd just keep living till Jesus comes. Not every struggle will be overcome. Sometimes our suffering, suffering and difficulties are perfectly within the will of God. And when that is the case, we have faith in God. We commit our souls to Him as a faithful creator. So there is a principle of faith. We approach God believing Him. We're not doubting Him. We are believing Him. Believing in His power. Believing then in His command to ask. Then there's the power of the Spirit. Mark 11 verse 23. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. That person who does not doubt in his heart. This is what brings up the spiritual reality of this passage. Because there's only one way uh, that we can have a heart that is not doubting. And that's by the power of the Spirit of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Not a spirit of doubt also. But a power of love and of a sound mind. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Uh, this is not a doubt of the power of prayer. And it's not a doubt of our faith, but it is a doubt of God. And if we approach God doubting Him, that robs our prayer life of power. When we approach again God filled with the Spirit and asking for wisdom, God, I don't know what's best for me, but you do. God, I don't know how to fix this, but you do. God, I don't know what I should pray for. But you do. God, I'm believing you need to show me then what to pray for and to help me know what I need. If we sit down with a burden, if we sit down with a sense of brokenness, we sit down with a sense that something is not right in my life, or maybe with the full-blown awareness that something is wrong. I need God's help. But if we don't begin that prayer saying, God, give me wisdom to know what to pray for, we're on shaky ground from the start. James says, let any man ask wisdom. Ask God to lead us, to show you, to show us what to do. And when we approach God then with that awareness, we are full of faith. We have faith in Him, complete faith. We are following His direction. He told us to ask and we're asking. We're asking for wisdom. He promised to give it to us. We have then a full assurance of faith. And we're living out what the Apostle John talked about in 1 John chapter 3 and in, again in chapter 5. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. You think about that point. I'm going to bring it back to you in just a moment. If our heart condemns us not. 
And this is the confidence in that we have in him, verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. We put those two things together. And we see what a prayer of faith is really about. Our heart is not condemning us. And because our heart is not condemning us, you know what that is? You know what we call that? We call it being under conviction. When our heart is not condemning us because we're praying for something and we, we don't, we're not praying with that in faith. But our heart is not condemning us. We, we have assurance in because that's not happening. And then we are asking according to the will of God. And he hears us. Yeah. 1 John 5.14 There's the principle of faith. We have faith in God. There is the power of the Spirit. The Spirit that gives us confidence. Because we're not under conviction in our heart. We've brought those things to God. We've prayed for wisdom. And we believe we have every reason to believe that what we are praying for then is according to to the will of God. If it was out of the will of God, what do you think the Holy Spirit's going to do? He'll convict us. And then there's one more thing. The practice of forgiveness. The practice of forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, Forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. That puts us back at that passage a couple of passages ago with our heart condemning us. We can establish this truth this morning very simply and very clearly. You can hold a grudge or you can get your prayers answered. Take your pick. Jesus is not speaking of forgiveness of sin in reference to our salvation. If you're saved today, then that great issue has already been determined. But there are sins that we commit after we are saved, born again into God's forever family. And if we stand before God with an unforgiving heart, refusing to forgive those who've done us wrong, then how can we approach God to forgive us for what we've done? Lack of forgiveness then shows up as a powerless prayer life and leads to a barren, unfruitful life. Leaves us going through the motions, serving, praying, singing, even preaching. But without the power that only comes through effective prayer. The practice of forgiveness. So God made a promise to Solomon long ago, and that promise, if you'll remember, had some conditions. Uh, if my people who are called by my name, we can all probably quote this, shall humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land, and my Ears will be open toward those prayers that are prayed from this place, this temple. 
You see, God made a promise long ago about hearing and responding to their prayers. But it was conditioned on them doing what he told them to do. And the same is true in our passage today. Jesus has given us some incredible promises about what we like to call mountain-moving prayer. Those mountains that... Real mountains, the mountains of trials, the mountains of tribulations, the mountains of difficulties that stand in the way in our life. Doesn't mean that God is going to move them all or take them all away. Because remember, we can suffer according to the will of God. But when we have sought God in faith, we have... Prayed then for wisdom. We have sought God. Then what happens? Remember Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John went up to the temple. I, I love this passage. I'm not going to read it all, although I'll put it up here on the board for y'all. Uh, Acts chapter 3 and verse 2. Uh, Peter and John going up to the temple the third hour in prayer. And there, there was a man laying there who was lame from his mother's womb. Uh, they brought him up there as they did day after day after day to beg for alms and and, and so here they go. He's laying there in the beautiful gate. And there's Peter and John. And there's this guy saying, alms and alms. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if they were digging in their pockets or not. Hey, you got any money? You got, any, you, you got a one? <laughs> you got a couple of quarters? Man, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if they did that or not. Probably didn't. It's not in the text. I would probably do something like that. What I do know that happened is they looked right at that fella said, sorry, I, I, we don't have any silver or gold to give you. Nothing. But what I do have, I'm going to give unto you. <laughs> In the name of Jesus Christ, he said, rise up and walk. <laughs> and that man was running all over the temple just before the day got started. It just, a boom. There was no doubt. And in their mind, they'd healed people before. But I submit to you, something incredible has happened. You see, before the cross, literally hours before the cross, the disciples slept through what was arguably the most important prayer meeting Jesus had ever called. Pray with me, Jesus said. Facing the cross. And they all went to sleep. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, they had a ten-day prayer meeting and what came next oh not much just Acts chapter 2 <laughs> day of Pentecost Acts chapter 3 hmm. a couple of days from the moment of our text this morning Jesus would be agonizing in prayer in the garden of Gethsemane praying for God to let that cup pass but again and again, he demonstrated for us the incredible reality of prayer. I mean, when you stop and think about it for a moment, there's something mysterious about the fact that Jesus ever prayed at all. I mean, he was God in, in, in the flesh. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily. And yet he prayed, and not just a little, he prayed a lot. 
And there on that garden of Gethsemane, I don't know how uh, the disciples even knew what he was praying since they slept through the whole thing, that the Holy Spirit apparently brought it back to them, or maybe Jesus just told them. I don't know. Maybe they caught a little bit of it. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Another great time when Jesus cried out to God and said, Now my soul is troubled, and what do I say? Again, a great mystery. How could the divine omniscience be at a loss for words? Now my soul is troubled, and what do I say? If Jesus hadn't have said that, we wouldn't have believed it. But he did say it. What do I say? But he had the answer. Father, glorify thy name. And that was one of those times when God himself spoke up from heaven. I have glorified it before and I will again, he said. I have no hope this morning of being able to answer all of the mysteries or all the questions about prayer. Chances are, everybody in this building, if you've been saved very long, has prayed for something you didn't get. And you may have prayed really, really hard for something that you didn't get. Sometimes it's about ourselves. More than likely, it was about somebody else. There's been some times that I begged God to give me the gift of healing. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Just one time, Lord, let me let me be like Peter and John that day. Just one time, Lord, let me turn this child's life around. This, this kid's going to die. Just one time. Get serious for us sometimes. But folks, what we have to learn is what Jesus taught us. Have faith in God. God told us to ask, and so we do. What we ask for is for wisdom because we think we know what we need and we don't. And in every prayer, we pray like our Lord Jesus. Not my will, but thine be done. When Jesus taught us to pray, wasn't that part of what he said? Thy will be done where? On earth. As it is where? In heaven. That's part of every prayer we pray. We believe God. And when we get ourselves lined up with his will, then things happen. When they don't, when our prayers are going nowhere, when we need something, and, and obviously it's something that the Bible tells us that we should have, but we should be experiencing and we're not. Something is amiss. Something that's convicted our hearts. One of the first place, places we need to look is our grudge list. 
Because Jesus said, if we don't deal with that, our prayers are going nowhere. I want to remind you as we conclude this morning that we're not finished yet, so it's not time to leave. I'll say that again for a few weeks. Number two, I want to remind you. This is no time, folk, to have a powerless prayer life. Let's not forget those guys standing up in the temple praying and praying loud and long, but their prayers were going nowhere. I'm not talking about the quantity of our prayers today. I'm talking about the power of our prayers. If our hearts are condemning us, part of our problem may be we're not praying much. Sometimes the reason we're not praying is because we know we've got a lot on our hearts between us and the Lord. I tell you, this is an incredible promise that Jesus Christ has given to us. Incredible promise in the power of prayer. And I'm not trying to get you today to stop believing in it. I want you to believe in it more. But I want us to ask ourselves the question. I'm not telling you today that God's going to work miracles, although God does work miracles. I'm not going to tell you that God is not doing incredible, going to do incredible things. God does incredible things all the time. All the time. I'm trying to get us to look at this promise and the conditions that Jesus put before us about our faith, about the power of the Spirit so that we're moved by the Spirit and not convicted by the Spirit. And the power and the practice of forgiveness. Let's all to bow our heads for a moment.